Accuracy matters, precision matters, but bullet performance in bodies matters more. That was a quick clip of today's guest, and I hope you're excited for it because I enjoyed this interview. Welcome to Everyday Marksman. I am your host, Matt Robertson, former military officer turned tech sector corporate grunt, okay shooter, outdoors enthusiast, and your friend. The Everyday Marksman is all about teaching tactical skills for an adventurous life. That is our goal here is to take everyday people and teach them how to be more self-sufficient, how to be more confident and more capable in the world. This is episode number 18, and you can find the show notes just like everything else at everydaymarksman.co. Now, today's interview is with Derek Bartlett, who is a longtime 28-year veteran of law enforcement, spent 16 years on SWAT teams and snipers and Fort Lauderdale Police Department, as well as the director of Snipercraft. He serves as the president of of the American Sniper Association, has written books, magazine articles, you name it. If it has to do with sniping, he has done it, written about it, researched it, and taught it. So I was super excited to get him on the podcast today. I will leave his whole bio in the show notes on the website. But there's a couple of things I want you to listen for in this episode. Right off the bat, look, I'm not a law enforcement officer. I don't serve in law enforcement. I'm never going to be a law enforcement sniper. So a lot of this stuff is nice gee whiz information. It's just, it's cool to hear. But as someone interested in precision shooting and competitive shooting, I took away a lot of good notes from this one as far as how to think about my equipment selection, what's working, what's not working, what's the difference between competitive shooting and law enforcement shooting. Now, if you are short for time, go ahead and jump to the last 10 minutes or so of the podcast. You'll catch my key takeaways from this one. I don't want to give anything away right now, so let's get to it. Derek, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. There's a distinction between military sniping and police sniping. What's the difference between those two? Well, military snipers are going to be working... At longer distances, they are less concerned with collateral damage in their engagements. They're shooting at soldiers or enemy combatants in a foreign land. If they miss, they just continue to fire until they get the effect that they want. If they wound their combatant, they're happy with that. Um, military snipers have the benefit of having gone through maybe a 10- or 14-week school prior to being deployed. Um, they deploy with the expectation that they're going to be on their own and isolated for long periods of time, and they have their fair share of support from other units. Police snipers have none of that. Uh, most police snipers are going to be deployed with equipment that their agencies can afford to buy them, in some cases not very good equipment. They will get a one-week school, maybe lucky to get a follow-up advance or intermediate school to go with it, um, they're going to be deploying in situations where their target is going to be an American citizen in an American city, and their rules of engagement are very restrictive and very narrow. There is no allowance for collateral damage. Accidentally wounding or killing a hostage brings with it terrible consequences. So it puts an enormous amount of pressure on these officers to perform in those circumstances without a whole lot of support. And then in the aftermath, whatever actions they take, are going to be scrutinized administratively in the media, in the public, and in the courts for years. And for some officers, it will change their lives forever. 
So one of the things you just mentioned was that snipers are often limited by what their department can afford. So going forward, is there like a suggestion that you've got for the kind of baseline equipment they should have? They need a good rifle and a good scope mounted on it. And unfortunately, some of the rifles that we see show up in class are 30-plus-year-old Remington 700s with 3.5-by-10 power scopes mounted on from the 90s. They need better rifles, they need better scopes, and some agencies are willing to spend the money to equip their people properly, and unfortunately a lot of smaller agencies don't, and even some larger agencies don't feel the need because they don't understand that rifles wear out, scopes wear out, and what you bought brand new 20, 30 years ago for your team is no longer appropriate for the mission that you expect them to be able to accomplish now. So just to clarify that, you're saying like the rifle design is no longer appropriate or does that rifle itself was worn out and just needs to be overhauled or replaced? That rifle itself is worn out. You mentioned that the distances are different. Um, I think everybody has this vision in their mind of when it comes to a sniper, they're talking something like, oh, five, six, seven, eight hundred thousand yard shots. Um, that's not true of police sniping. Though. No, not at all. In fact, most police sniper engagements are inside of 100 yards, and that's just the nature of where they deploy. Most of them are in residential neighborhoods or con- commercial areas, and there just isn't enough spread there for them to set up in those types of situations where they're going to be multiple hundred yards away. Because um, it reminds me, if you don't mind, I have a quote here from the opening of, of uh, John Simpson's book where you did the forward. Uh, you said, It's a classic image that comes to mind when we think of a sniper. Hiding in the shadows, partially obscured by camouflage, he lays prone behind his rifle, eye in his scope, patiently waiting for a target of opportunity or of necessity. But the reality is, is this how snipers really work? The answer is no, not always. It's an oft-repeated mantra in snipercraft classes that the world you work in is not flat. Let's kind of go into that. So it's not the first time I've seen that quote come up before. Uh, Not exactly that world you work in is not flat, but I I was reading up a book where we're talking about the prone position. And after going through all the variations of prone, the author, as Kyle Lamb, said that we don't live in a prone world. He is correct. It's an area in classes that we really focus on getting snipers off their bellies and off their bipods and make them shoot like real snipers may be forced to shoot. What are some examples you can think of where you know, people would be shocked that that's actually how it works versus what you see in a movie. <laughs> well, we maintain a database of all the police sniper shootings in the country, and we know from that database that almost half of the shootings that have occurred that we have records of have occurred from something other than prone position. So that means that snipers are shooting bad guys from standing position, from kneeling position, from variations of seated position. So training has to reflect that. And we point out that we have instances like uh, one in Connecticut years ago where the sniper started off prone. His bad guy starts running across the parking lot and the sniper can't shoot him from where he is. So he jumps up and runs from his initial position to another one at the other end of the building he's on sees the bad guy reappear and takes a shot on him standing on a running target at 114 yards and manages to hit him. No one ever pictures a police sniper making that kind of shot. So Derek, in your experience now with all this stuff going on, what has really changed in police sniping since you've gotten started? Well, one of the biggest changes has been equipment. Um, I can remember back when I first started, 
the uniforms were army surplus, the rifles were hand-me-downs or confiscations or something you brought from home, like auxiliary equipment, you just kind of made do with what you could get your hands on. Things like elbow pads and knee pads you got from wrestling teams or skateboarders and things of that sort. Nowadays, there's so much equipment that is purposely designed and built for SWAT and special operations teams. It's a completely different field. Um, so when it comes to kind of that specialized equipment, I mean, you mentioned the like auxiliary, so or auxiliary, the like, knee pads and other special stuff. What, is there, what else is in there? Is that kind of the, the standard fares or even more specialized things? Um, things like, well, tripods. And there's a, a lot of interest in tripod shooting these days. And you talk to young snipers and young competitive shooters, and they treat it like the tripod was invented 15 minutes ago. But back in the days, we shot off with tripods, and back then the tripods were old camera tripods that somebody was throwing away. I remember I bought my first one at a garage sale. It was lightweight. It was aluminum. It was very flimsy. You made a rifle rest out of PVC pipe and duct tape, and you made do with it. And now, many years later, you've got companies coming up with things like Really Right Stuff or Field Officers Research or Manfrotto's for tripods and things like hog saddles and gun pods for rifle rest. And I've seen a lot of that stuff in competition before. Do you find a lot of carryover between competition to real world? There is some as far as equipment goes, but a lot of what competitive shooters do doesn't really translate directly to police sniping, and that's an area of concern for us as trainers because we see a lot of people come over thinking that just because they shoot 800 yards at a competitive match that it has a direct correlation to police sniping, and it doesn't. I had a conversation with with Russ Miller, who also does a lot of uh, precision shooting competition, and he said something similar, that there's a relationship, but you have to have a filter between knowing what is appropriate for competition world and what's appropriate for the real world. Like He even is talking about where you set your ammo down you know, in a, in a match versus actually keeping it on the rifle was one example of that. Yes. And I know Russ really well. I've known him a long time and he's spot on with that. Competitive shooters work in a different environment where the penalty from missing your shot is a loss of points and a little bit of embarrassment among your peers. Police snipers work in an environment where a miss costs somebody their life. It may cost the officer themselves their career. It's a completely different penalty set for it. So there's no margin of error for, for cop snipers as opposed to a, a competitive shooter. Competitive shooters pretty much plan their shots out. They shoot basically when they're ready to shoot within whatever time limits may be set by their course of fire. A police sniper is always going to be forced to shoot on demand. As we tell the guys in classes, you don't decide when the bad guy gets shot. He decides when you have to shoot him. Yeah. Do you, do you ever think there's maybe uh, people who are really into competitive shooting or overconfident in what they can do? You mentioned like an 800 yard shot before. Um, you know, I think you wrote, you wrote an article a while ago about, uh, I guess, an example where a police sniper shot a handgun out of somebody's hand in a hostage situation. And that was like, oh, wow, this is perfect. But you were cautioning that that's, that's not really a, even a desirable tactic to do. Um, do you think there's some kind of overconfidence that goes on? Many people outside of the police sniper world know what they know about sniping from what they see on television and the movies. 
and that's always presented in a much more dramatic way than what real sniping is all about. And things like a high-profile incident where you're shooting a gun out of somebody's hand works great for your police drama, but in real world, first of all, it would be considered illegal in most places because if you don't have just legal justification to use deadly force against the person, you have no legal justification to shoot the weapon that's close to him or in his hand. There's so many things that can go wrong even if you hit the weapon with fragmentation, with accidental de- detonation of the, the ammunition in the gun, the possibility of collateral damage to people in the surrounding vicinity. It, it's just a terrible thing to do, but the myth is perpetuated by what you see on television and in the movies. I think like one I always see all the time is, is oh, just shoot him in the knee. As, yeah. as, as some guy who's running after you, like that's a hard target to hit. Yeah, uh, again, we tell guys in class, it's tough enough to have a police officer who's standing in a, a range facility with no threat of death or great bodily harm to himself and tell him deliberately hit the arm on a B-27 target that's stapled to a cardboard backer at the end of the range. And they can't do it in those non-stressful conditions. Now you add the stress of a gunfight with somebody on the other end trying to actively kill you. They're moving. You're moving. The lighting may not be the best, and now you're asking them to deliberately hit a small target like an arm or a leg. It doesn't happen. So um, out of curiosity, what are some other myths you've heard that you, you, would, you would love to dispel? Uh, good question. Well, one long-standing one is ammunition choices for snipers. Uh, the Sierra Match King Boatel Hollow Point bullet has been around forever and ever, and we find that we're battling that in schools, trying to make people understand that that was a bullet that was designed for target shooting, and it's really good at that thing. But bullets are designed for other things, and for snipers, the reason that you're shooting people is to stop them. And you need a bullet that's designed for primarily terminal performance over accuracy. And there are still agencies in this day and age that haven't understood that they're still using target shooting ammo as their primary deployment ammo, and it's dangerous because the bullet cell hollow point does not expand in tissue, and it results in through-and-through wounds on a really high percentage, which puts teammates and hostages in danger as the bullet passes through your primary target. So do you think that stems from... Because uh, I know I know the the SMK is really popular among military as well, but I mean obviously the military is bound by things like hate conventions uh, and limitations where police is not necessarily. Do you think that's part of the root of that, or suggest that they like they like precision oriented bullets because that's what they learned on? Well, it's part of it. I mean, the police sniper community when it started up in the '60s and '70s pretty much modeled themselves after the military version. So the choice in equipment, the choice in training, the choice in ammunition, all came from their military brothers. So when they saw that they were using Sierra Match Kings for accuracy, then they followed along like little puppies. But over time, whereas the military may be limited by the Hague Convention and things of that sort, which is debatable, law enforcement snipers have been resistant in some places. We're seeing a switch more and more now, but resistant from switching to something better because they are so wrapped up in how tight a five-round group they can shoot on paper. 
and we have to get them past the belief that that's not important. Accuracy matters, precision matters, but bullet performance in bodies matters more. So uh, uh, you mentioned kind of went way back when snipers got started. Where did police sniping really come from? Police sniping and SWAT teams probably got their initial startups in the late 60s, early 70s. LAPD is credited in most historical accounts as being the first agency to start up SWAT teams. And little by little, other agencies around the country solved the model and tried to duplicate it in full gear. But where do you where do you see kind of the trend going with gear, though? Because you mentioned how gear's already changed so far with uh, better rifles, better ancillary equipment and tripods and learning to use these things. Um, do you see the shift in the future towards more like the semi-auto platforms or different calibers? There is movement to go to things like different calibers and semi-autos, but we caution people in the police sniper community to, to tell them those are things that don't, they solve a problem that you don't have. They are solutions to a problem that doesn't exist. With semi-autos, they are great rifles for a battlefield. They give you no distinct advantage in a law enforcement sniper environment. And I'm sure that there are people who are spinning in place hearing me say that, but the truth is, looking at the big picture of sniper applications around the country, there isn't a serious application for semi-automatic rifles for police snipers. The same goes for calibers. The 308 caliber is as close to perfect for what you want a sniper bullet to be able to do in law enforcement as there is. So when we see people asking questions about going to like the 6.5 Creedmoor, it's a great round. It's, it's very popular in the competitive shooting community because of the distances they shoot and the targets that they have. But for law enforcement, it it doesn't solve a problem. It ballistically, it's a better round once you get beyond 300 yards than a 308. But police snipers don't work beyond 300 yards in most places. So you're saying solve the problem you actually have, not not yeah. the imaginary one. Yes. So <clears throat> come up with 308 rifles that are reliable and rugged and easy to maintain. Um, perfect bullets that are going to be accurate and reliable and affordable. Uh, come up with optics that, again, are rugged and reasonably priced. But there really isn't a, a crying need for some new twist on the, the equipment that's available right now to say, this will solve all your problems. It, it's not out there. Yeah, I think that's that's a, a common Common issue, right? <laughs> People try to substitute practice with gear. That's always been an issue in police work and military. Every problem can be solved with a new toy. Forget about training and tactics. New toy. Uh, application of more money. Yes. Assuming somebody has the baseline of gear, which, you know, rugged or reliable rifle, like you mentioned, accurate ammo that does its job, uh, and an optic that holds a zero and is actually clear enough to, to use effectively. Um, when it comes to starting to train for things or even do competition, like what do you, how do you add more realism to that? Like, because competition itself is not providing the right, the right, I guess, experience all the time. Um, you have to put it in context. So how, how can you actually better prepare? Snipers need to go to good police sniper schools. 
and they need to return to agencies that have good, solid, reality-based in-service training programs and that they train on a regular basis from day one until they hang up their rifles. Unfortunately, a lot of them don't go to good schools. They're going to some of the nonsense that's out there, and then they come back to agencies that don't have a good solid in-service program or they don't have enough hours. Uh, we talk to agencies where the snipers get to shoot a box of ammo a month and train for maybe three or four hours tops. That's not nearly enough for them to learn, master, and maintain their skill set. And so you say the skill set. So I know I've talked to other people before who've mentioned, and you, I think you said it too as well, that you know a, a, a police sniper might show up to show up and has maybe a week to two weeks of training. And, and the only thing you can guarantee is that, you know, they qualified on a pistol at some point in the past. So what kind of skills do you think people really should be learning before they jump into the role? They need to understand the fundamentals of, of shooting a rifle because that's the foundation for everything else. Once they have the fundamentals squared away, then they can progress and learn the things like shooting under stress and shooting from various positions. But without a sound foundation of fundamentals, it's a waste of time. They also need to have a very clear understanding of their use of force rules. They need to understand their, their state laws and statutes as they apply to use of force by a police officer. They need to understand different department policies as they apply to that. They need to have a, a sound background with their SWAT teams to understand how the different personnel, what their functions are, and how the sniper is going to interact with them in a beneficial way. There's a lot that they need to work on and have a good foundation to build with so that a sniper school can be spent adding on to those skills, and then when they come back to their agency in-house, they continue to build on what they've learned in sniper school. So what do you think is the biggest reason that this stuff doesn't happen? Snipers in law enforcement are unappreciated until you desperately need one. Administrators are reticent to send people away to a school because they don't understand that they need specialized training. We personally would love to do two- and three-week basic sniper schools. We know it will never happen because getting them to send a student for a week is pulling teeth. But there are agencies out there that don't even want to send them for a week, so you end up with these fly-by-night schools that offer two- and three-day sniper schools, and in two or three days, you can't teach a sniper nearly enough to be effective as a sniper. You can spend some time on the range with him, shoot a few boxes of ammo, but he does not come back with anywhere close to a good skill set to build on. And when it comes back to coming back to your agencies, again, they don't value the snipers enough to understand they need to train for their specialty. So they lump them in with the rest of the SWAT team, they do other SWAT stuff, and then excuse them for a couple hours so you guys can go shoot and zero your rifles and then come back to the regular SWAT training. But come call-out time, they expect these guys to be able to perform at a high level on a consistent basis with no real training. That actually gets you to another question. I think um, there's this misconception out there that sniping is all about just the shooting part of it. Is that true? Not at all. It's a famous mantra of ours that there's more to sniping than shooting. And unfortunately, a lot of schools that are out there are what we call trigger schools. They spend five days on the range shooting and shooting and more shooting 
with little attention to the other things that go into sniping. Camouflage, concealment, covert movement, high construction, observation, understanding use of force laws, decision-making, those types of things are all primary steps to getting a sniper to the point where he would actually press the trigger on a call-out. If they don't have those skills, the other, the marksmanship doesn't matter. But that's not the cool stuff. That's not the fun stuff. So a lot of schools just ignore it and focus on the shooting time. And to fill that time, they come up with ridiculous things like having police snipers shooting out to five, six, eight hundred yards when in reality, no police sniper is ever going to take a 600 yard shot. I'm kind of reminded of like hunters when I lived out west where, you know, while the range may have even allowed it, it was not really an ethical thing to do to take a shot at 400 yards, for instance, with the, the rifle that you had at the time. And it's a, it's a big thing just because you have 400-yard dope on your rifle or 600-yard dope on your rifle doesn't mean you're mission qualified or mission capable at those distances. When you get beyond 200 yards, and you know this as a shooter yourself, a lot of environmental factors come into making that shot. And it's an art form as much as it is a skill to be able to accurately estimate the distance, come up with your come-ups for your rifle settings, read the wind and the other environmental conditions, come up with an accurate compensation for them, and hit a man-sized target at those distances. And again, with police snipers, if there's friendlies or hostages in close proximity, you better be really good with all those estimations and be on because a miss means collateral damage. So as far as some of the other skills you mentioned, you mentioned the observation, you mentioned uh, concealment and I don't know, being sneaky. I think John Simpson had mentioned that the first job of a sniper is to be sneaky on an mm-hmm. episode with him. Um, so what kind of stuff goes into that? Well, we build on the observation skills and let them know that learning how to see teaches you how the world looks for you. And you understand then how camouflage works, how a person trying to spot a sniper position, how the visual process is impaired when you make use of correct camouflage colors and patterns and textures. You understand the role that movement plays in the visual cycle that if you move less, human beings have difficulty discerning your presence because they rely on movement to help them identify what an object is. Now understanding how camouflage works, you get into the types of camouflage patterns that are out there, the different types of uniforms that are available to you, the importance of color choices, understanding the, the, the need to adapt to your surroundings and be flexible in that one camouflage may work perfectly well in this environment, but that camouflage would be inappropriate in a different season of the year. And once you understand the principles behind it, camouflage becomes very easy because you're you're accomplishing a goal by achieving the principles underlying it. So we, when we teach them, your goal is to create a void in space that you can hide in because in order for people to see you, light has to be available. And if you can control the light around you in such a way that it creates a black hole, a void in space, you can hide anything in it, but you need to understand where the sources of the light are, how to control them, and to use those things against the people who would be using those visual skills to try and find you. I know this wasn't kind of planned in here, but I know you're known for tactical vision. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? Way back when we first started teaching sniper schools, 
our teaching of observation was limited to what we knew. We taught the usual mantras of pay attention to detail. We would do the Kim's games. We would do the exercises where you'd put objects in a tree line and tell the students to find it. But it always felt like to us that there was something more, something missing. So we stumbled upon a topic that had been studied in the scientific world called perceptual blindness. And the key concept of perceptual blindness is helping people to understand the mechanics of the visual system, how the eyes and brains work in conjunction with one another to allow you to actually see what's out there. So we started studying that more and found that it had a direct application in the world of snipers because your primary responsibility is to observe and report. So we needed to start off by teaching potential snipers, this is how you see. These are the limitations that you currently have. These are the capabilities that you can develop with training exercises and introduce them to exercises that lead into being able to scan in a systematic fashion to retain information that you're seeing, to recognize and be able to separate reality from the things that are created cognitively that are incorrect, being able to access visual information faster through things like flash recognition training. And it's a very popular portion of our sniper schools, and because of the success we had in sniper schools, we developed a standalone class called Tactical Vision that teaches observation skills at this level. And it's a very good class. It's a fun class to go through, even though it's very frustrating at first, because people are suddenly aware of just how poor they are at observation. But after a while, it clicks, and they get it, and they understand how this is supposed to work. Uh, if you don't mind, what might, what might an exercise for that look like? Well, we have different scanning exercises where we give them a lot of visual information on a slide, and the only way they can see what it is we're telling them to look for, we make them systematically scan through the slide to see what's there. Uh, we show them flash pictures where they see a slide with information on it for a second or less than a second and ask them, specific questions about what they just saw on the slide and it makes them understand the, the need to pay attention to what they're seeing and to let their brain process it correctly to be able to see it. Flash recognition exercises work on the concept of your eyes transmit accurate and reliable information to your brain. It's in the brain that things get mixed up. So we teach them that you have the capability to see a slide we start off with numbers, but if you can see a slide with a number on it for a tenth of a second and see the information on the slide, if you'll understand the process of letting your brain process what your eyes just sent to it. And it, it's amazing to see the transition that people make when they understand the process and then start to apply the process. So um, I guess I could get to kind of one last round of questions here. Um, so we're going to run out of time. Um, so one I asked everybody is what is, and this, this is uh, this may come across as negative. It's not meant to be that way. Um, you can take your time to think about it, but when it comes to kind of the shooting culture in general, what is something you wish people would stop doing? Hmm. The shooting culture in general or it's or sniper sniper either way. It's kind of, it's kind of open-ended question. Well, I think for snipers, what I would like to see them do less of is waste their time in training doing things that they'll never actually do. 
spend more time getting really good with your rifle 200 yards and in. And then when you get to that stage, then you can experiment and shoot six, eight hundred thousand yards. It's fun to do, but there's no point to it, especially if you're doing it at the expense of the focusing training on what you need to be able to do, which is be really good 200 yards and in. So, and then the last question here, Derek, I enjoyed our conversation. If anybody wants to go learn more about you or the American Sniper Association, where should they go? Each organization has a website. It's snipercraft.org and americansniper.org. They can find out who we are, what we do, where we do it. Um, they can learn about dates and of our schedule, what's available to the law enforcement community and military. Um, if they're interested in joining the association, there's information there on the American Sniper website as to how to do that. Um, once they become members in the American Sniper website, there is a secure portion of the website in which they can download documents and policies and things of that sort. Thank you very much. I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. It's been a pleasure. You're very welcome. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I know I did. So let's talk about my key takeaways from this one. Now, I am not a police officer, and chances are you might not be either. If you are, I'm sure you took away a lot from that as well, but I'm not. So I'm going to focus on a couple other key lessons learned here that I got from Derek. So number one, know the problem you're trying to actually solve and then go after that problem. During the interview, Derek was talking about how a lot of sniper schools or even agencies are investing in equipment and training that just isn't all that useful to the mission role in front of them. For example, uh, the 6-5 Creedmoor is a great competition round. It's excellent when you start going past the 500 yards and then it starts beating out the 308. But the reality is, and law enforcement sniping is that most instances happen inside 200 yards or less, in which case the 308 is probably the better choice because it's more inexpensive to practice with. It has enough ballistic mass. It performs well. It does everything you need it to do. And on that same note, when it comes to bullet selection, Derek talked about how a lot of snipers have settled on using Sierra match King bullets, which are match bullets as opposed to bullets designed to actually have a better terminal effect. Again, this comes down to your use. Most people just like you and me are going to be shooting more precision matches, in which case, yeah, we want that match king bullet. Uh, if you're a law enforcement sniper or a hunter, you probably want to use something designed for that purpose. The second big takeaway for me on this one was just a reminder of how many other things there are to learn. I think this kind of comes back to speaking about the marksman's path concept I mentioned way back in episode number three, and that I love the shooting side of things, but there's so much more to learn. And a lot of people neglect that because the other stuff is hard or it's not obviously as useful to you. In Derek's example, there are trigger schools where you can send a law enforcement sniper for two, three days, and they're just going to shoot a bunch of rounds, maybe go out to distances that aren't all that useful, but they'll get some trigger time and say, hey, they're, they're sniper qualified. But in truth, there's a lot more to learn. There's the observation piece, the concealment piece, the reporting piece. There's a lot of things that you yourself can also learn aside from just shooting that makes you really useful on a team. And that's going to be it for me on this one. There's a lot of good information here, but I think those two are the big ones I want to walk away with. 
If you had a different one, make sure you come by the website, everydaymarksman.co, find this episode, and leave a comment. Now let's talk about the sponsors for this episode. This episode is sponsored by me. That's right. There are no sponsors, no ads here. This is just me having some fun, but I could use your support. So as you already know, our website is everydaymarksman.co. If you want to help me out and you're new, go ahead and hit that subscribe button and share it with a friend. If you've been listening for a while, I would actually really appreciate you'd leave me a review. And I've made this super easy for you. If you go to everydaymarksman.co forward slash rate, R-A-T-E, that'll take you to a portal where you can leave a review at all your favorite podcast players. That really does help me out. gets the word out there. Now, if you've already done that and you want to get more involved, tell you what, I have a spot set up at everydaymarksman.co forward slash support, where for the cost of a box of ammo or a cup of coffee, depending how you look at it, you can help me keep making good content. And you can even subscribe to that for a, a coffee a month. And that really does help me out. Um, that is the best way. But you know what? I'm not pushing that on you. That's just, it would help me out if you really enjoy what I'm doing here. All right, Marks and Tribe, that's going to do it for me. I hope you guys have a wonderful week. I will talk to you next time. This is Matt signing off.